0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Las Musas podcast. Today, we have a special debut spotlight episode with Andrea Beatriz Arango. My name is Karina Nicole Gonzalez, and I'm the author of the new release and Kirkus-starred picture book, The Coquillas Still Sing, Los Coquillas Aún Cantan, and also a school-based speech-language pathologist in Brooklyn, New York. The Coquillas Still Sing is a story of home, hope, and rebuilding following the aftermath of Hurricane Maria in September 2017 in Puerto Rico. It's available in English and Spanish wherever books are sold. Today, I'm blessed to introduce my talented friend and author, Andrea Beatriz Arango. Andrea was born and raised in Puerto Rico. She is the author of the Kirkus Star, Ibelis Explains It All, and is a former public school teacher with almost a decade of teaching experience under her belt. Andrea now writes the types of children's books she wishes students had more access to. She balances her life in Virginia with trips home to see her family and eats lots of tostones de pana, amen, amen. (laughs) When she's not busy, you can always find her enjoying nature in the nearest forest or body of water. Andrea, thank you so much for bringing the story into the world and introducing us to Ibelis. Before we get into the story, como tal, I want to start off talking about the motivating forces behind your creative expression. What compelled you to first start writing stories? And
1: why do you write middle grade novels? So (laughs) that's a good question. I've been writing ever since I can remember. Um, Recently, actually, my mom mailed me a box with just like a bunch of stories that she had saved over the years and I mean there's like stories that I wrote in kindergarten and like Mm -hmm. first grade so like (laughs) as soon as I learned to write basically I was I was writing down stories so it's something I've always wanted to do but something that I didn't always think I could do. (laughs) Um, As far as middle grade you know I don't I don't think that I ever said oh I want to be a middle grade author specifically, but um, I've worked with a lot of kids in that age range as a teacher and as a foster mom, as well as kids a little bit older. And so, I don't know, I think I just felt like really comfortable with that age range and it made sense for me to try to write some stories meant for those kids. Um, Especially because I think as we move towards a greater body of diversity in publishing, which we're not there yet, but we're taking steps in that direction. Um, I definitely think that YA is ahead of middle grade in terms of the kinds of stories that are being showcased. And so I'm excited to contribute to the middle grade novels that are out there and add another Puerto Rican story to the mix, add some mental health rep to the mix. So yeah, (laughs) that's how I got into it.
0: Absolutely. And the way you've written the story allows us to share this super intimate space with the main character of the story, who goes by the name Iba Lise. Iba is a 12-year-old Puerto Rican girl who has major moxie. She's just beginning the seventh grade and at times feels that everyone is against her. I think that's a relatable experience for many preteens and teens and honestly adults too, like me. Although <laughs> her feelings are quite relatable, they stem from a traumatic experience in her life. Many kids experience trauma and for some it's left unresolved. Can you talk a bit about um, who is Ivelise and what is she
1: trying to explain to us? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's an Ivelisse in, in every classroom, I think. Um, yes, she has experienced trauma and sometimes people think of that word and they have like a, a very clear idea of what they think is and isn't trauma. And they don't realize that lots of things that you might consider small could be traumatic for other people. And so a lot of kids have gone through traumatic things. And that may be what you consider big T trauma or what you might think of as like little T trauma. Um, All trauma is trauma. (laughs) And so I think it's important to write stories where kids have gone through things and are, um, you know, navigating their mental health, which, you know, could present itself, in Ibelisa's case, it presents itself as anxiety and depression, and, you know, she has PTSD, she gets panic attacks, she has flashbacks, Um, and and those are things that are experienced by a lot of kids. They might not have all of the things um, that she's going through, but a lot of kids, and I think especially since the pandemic, struggle with anxiety, struggle with depression, struggle with PTSD, um, and there's not enough stories where this is presented um, in a way that feels like healthy and normalized and not as a stigma.
0: You're absolutely right. And can you elaborate a little bit more about how Ivalice um, navigates her uh, trauma? And what does she do to help herself get through some of those difficult memories or moments that
1: she has? Yeah, so in Ivelisa's case, you know, she actually has a pretty good supportive group of people around her, but she doesn't always know how to access those people, which I think is something that happens to a lot of people. You might have friends or family members who are well-intentioned and want to help you, but they don't know how to help you and maybe you don't know how to tell them what you need or what you want and so for a lot of the story Ivelisse is basically trying to figure out how to communicate to the people around her what she needs how to stay true to herself Um, and while she figures that out her journal is kind of her her biggest helper because there she's able to write down the things that she doesn't quite yet feel comfortable sharing with the people around her. And so um, it is my hope that that all kids who are navigating these things have some sort of outlet like that, whether it's writing or art or sports, Um, because sometimes it is hard to verbally say things to other people. But if you at least have something that you can engage in by yourself, that can sometimes help you process things independently as well.
0: Exactly. And sometimes kids don't always want to, you know, share their feelings with their family, and that's where I wanna go next. Um, family relationships are at the core of your story, and I think your story in an, is an honest depiction of the complexities of the fi- family dynamic within just one household environment. As a kid, I remember reading a lot of chapter books that glossed over the family dynamic and were more friendship-centered. And for me, as an only child, I remember craving more stories that centered on family relationships And your book does that exactly. And so exquisitely, can you talk a little bit about how you imagine this family, the process of developing each multidimensional character, and did you draw any of your own personal experiences as reference points for your
1: story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree with you that there are a lot of kids' books where the family is just like, absent. (laughs) Um, And I knew I didn't want to write a book like that because, you know, I grew up in a family where we, I mean, I was constantly getting together with all my aunts and uncles, with my cousins, with my grandparents, like we didn't really need an excuse to get together and have a family reunion. And so I grew up constantly interacting with family members, not not just like my own bubble in my house, but all of my extended members too. And so I really wanted to write a book that showed a home like that, where the family members were present and were very much a part of the story. Um, and so having it be intergenerational too was was something that was important to me because like I said, I grew up seeing my grandparents all the time, even though they didn't live with us. Um, But a lot of kids, actually, a lot of kids do grow up that way here, like in immigrant families. Um, And sometimes it's more just like, uh, people come to the States, and then they all share housing while they can find other places to go. But you don't see that always in kids' books, even though that is the situation for a lot of our students. And so that's why I wanted to have the grandmother live with them and kind of show that sort of home. Um, I did want to make them complex and nuanced in that obviously everyone in Ibelisa's family loves her a lot. And they all want her to be happy and be okay. Like nobody's setting out to harm her. but you know, in families, you, you hurt each other without meaning to all the time. Yeah. (laughs) And so I wanted to show that. And I wanted to show her having a very specific sort of relationship with her mom and a different relationship with her grandma and, you know, a different relationship, even when all three of them are together. Um, because I think that that's how it is in real life. And and I didn't want to make it like this character is bad and this character is good. Like everybody's just doing their best it's just that your best isn't always free from harm
0: (laughs) no yeah well and I thought that was such an interesting aspect of the story the generational different differences to how they view mental health and especially the abuela in your story can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to to show those generational differences in your story
1: Mm -hmm. yeah I think again like I'm I'm just trying to show what I think is very common um, in Latino households in general, but also specifically where I'm from, like in Puerto Rico, You know, mental health is very stigmatized. And even though I think we've gotten a little better um, about like adult mental health, I think in general, and this is not just like Latinx, not just Puerto Rico, but I think just across the whole like US as well, we we do tend to look at children's mental health a little bit differently than adults you know i think it's become more normalized for adults to seek out therapy and like self care you know taking care of my mind and body and you know and everybody's all about that but then you talk about like a child needing or wanting therapy and people are a little bit more like oh what's wrong with that kid um and i think that's especially apparent when you get you know the the grandparents versus the grandchildren because i think you know the her mom is kind of that transitional stage between them where she knows evilis really needs therapy wants evilis really to have therapy um but still doesn't completely understand it because she grew up with her own mother and sort of those preconceived notions about mental health and and so in my book you see a lot especially the mom kind of tiptoeing that balance of like, whose side am I on? <laughs> am I on my mother's side or like my child's side? Or at least that's how we at least sees it, right? As like her mom taking sides. Um, and so I just wanted to show that because I do think that that's the reality. It was definitely the reality when I was growing up. It's still the reality now for a lot of families. Yeah. And
0: that's really tricky for a kid who's just trying to figure themselves out too at at that age. Uh, then also trying to understand. Well, abuela thinks this. Mommy thinks this. What? What do I think? What, like, how am I supposed to navigate this if there's mixed messaging? And um, so that's what I also loved a lot about your story too. Is that it conveys the spectrum of human emotion and emotional literacy is so important for children, especially during those you know angsty um, preteen teenage years. And on top of the hormonal changes, kids are also navigating. Um, more complex relationships and learning how to effectively communicate across numerous contexts. How do you envision the story being used as a tool for emotional literacy
1: in the classroom setting? Part of the reason why I really hope that it ends up in a lot of classrooms and in a lot of libraries is because I think this is the kind of book where even if you don't personally relate to what Ivelisse is going through, you probably know someone who does. <laughs> and if you think you don't, that person just hasn't opened up to you yet. you know. And so I think that kids reading these kinds of stories, even if it's not something that has happened to them personally, will help them be a better friend and a better classmate when they then come across other students who might be going through similar things. And I think it also makes it more okay for kids to talk about like I, you know, in in all my years teaching, I very rarely came across kids who felt comfortable saying I go to therapy, like they would tell me in like one on one conversations, but it wasn't something that would be like brought up to class. Um, But you know, we don't read a lot of books where we see kids talking about the fact that they go to therapy, and, and it just being this like normal thing. And, and that's why I wanted Lise to tell that to her new friend that she makes in the book, because I think it is important that we understand that it's not something we have to hide. It's not something that we have to be like secretive about. Like people can know you go to therapy and it's completely fine. It won't affect your friendship with them. Um, But like, I know that as an adult, (laughs) but I think kids need to see more of that in books so that hopefully they don't feel like they have to hide um, what's going on with them.
0: That speaks to the level of shame, this, Mm -hmm. you know, underlying shame that even, you know, a kid, preteen kid develops and, you know, comes from a lot of, well, not just family, it can come from, you know, media as well, or, you know, you know, the social setting, but also from family. And it's interesting in the Caribbean, you know, we have this Um, other history of and all this other stuff. And sometimes the older generation is more, um, you know, accustomed to those types of traditions or more familiar with them and like new age, like Western medicine or mental weight, the ways to navigate uh, mental health. They're um, not as familiar with, and maybe, um, you know, will communicate to their families. Well, you know, you should try this other method um, or this herbal remedy and, you know, and it's okay to honor that while also acknowledging that there are these more modern techniques that we can use to, you know, help ourselves. And so I think that,
1: and that it's, and that it's a valid, you know, it's not someone just trying to like take your money and like, like it's a real doctor, you know, therapists (laughs) are real doctors. Exactly. They they, go
0: to school for many
1: years. They go to school to be therapists. You know, psychologists, psychiatrists—you know, these are trained professionals. But I think sometimes in certain communities, they're still seen as like, (laughs) like a fake professional. You know, like oh, they're just trying to take my money. Like what? I can just talk to my cat. You know, (laughs) like why am I going to pay someone to talk to them? And yeah, there's still definitely a lot of misconceptions around therapy and. And kids absorb that, you know, if they hear adults in their life or, you know, at school, if they hear teachers or other peers, um, those attitudes kind of make their way into you, you know, And, and you might not respond to it in the moment, but over time, like that starts to create that sort of sense of shame that you were talking about, where you might not even realize it, but everything you've been hearing around you. Just leads you to believe that this is not okay even if no one has ever said that to you directly
0: that's why I think this might be a I I I guess I was going to use the word fun but it's it's more it's more complicated than just the word fun but I think it might be an interesting uh, read for a parent child you know Mm. together you know they both read the book and then come and have these discussions about what they perceive from the mom what they perceive from the child's perspective i think that would be yeah
1: i i do think that in general um parents and kids at this age and above don't have as many open and direct conversations about things as they should um i think a lot of the times adults are like scared to talk to kids one-on-one and like honestly like that Um, And so, yeah, I did want to show that in my book. I wanted to show how Ivelisse and her mom are able to start having those conversations even though it's really hard for them at first. Because you're right, hopefully, um, you know, other parents will read this book with their child and maybe that will help them have their own sets of conversations. Uh, Because at the end of the day, you know, if you don't communicate with each other, like neither of you will know what the other person is actually going through.
0: Exactly. I want to talk a little bit about, you hinted at the the friend that Ibalis makes in the story, uh, Virginia, where you're based, has one of the highest concentrations of Afghani refugees in the country. Not to get terribly political, but all of these families have been affected by the terrors of, terrors of war. There's a character in your story, Amir, who is Afghani and who, like Ibalis, has lived through the traumatic experience of fleeing his homeland. I so value the addition of this character in your story, and you communicate so clearly the emotional weight of the world and family that kids bring with them to school every day. Sometimes they find ways to cope, yet they might not know how or who to ask for help. Why was it important for you to introduce us to Amir, and how do you think his character arc fits in with Evis?
1: Yeah, so I I do. We definitely have a lot of kids um, in Virginia public schools who are coming from Afghanistan and um just that general area too um you know iran iraq pa- pakistan just a lot a lot of um students coming from that area and so i wanted to show that representation like in my book i i read <laughs> i read somewhere once and i don't remember who said this um but they said that like it you you shouldn't say your book is diverse if the only diverse character is like your main character. Mm. Like if your main character in my case, um, you know, is Latinx, but if every single other person in the book Mm. is not, then, you know, the book isn't actually diverse. And obviously there's like more nuance to it than that, but it is something that I keep in mind when I'm writing books is I want to show, you know, her friends also um, being from other countries or having different cultural experiences or religious experiences, you know, depending on what book I'm writing, um, because that's how it is in school. You know, there's such a huge mix of everything. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love Amir. (laughs) I think he is just the absolute sweetest. Um, and I wanted to share his story too, just because obviously Ivalice's experience, um, you know, she may be Latina, but it's obviously a very different experience from other, and she she says it herself, you know, someone who is immigrating from El Salvador obviously doesn't have the same experience that her mom did coming from Puerto Rico to the States, and so partly I wanted to have Amir, like, share about his grandfather and stuff, um, so that kids are aware that, yeah, like, those kids that are in the ESOL classes at school, you know, like, sometimes they've been through a lot of stuff, and, Um, Maybe you should be a little patient (laughs) while they're learning English. Um, But I did also want to kind of model what a healthy friendship can look like. Um, I think kids don't always know exactly how to communicate with each other in healthy ways because what they see in media, like if they're going home and they're only watching telenovelas where people are like (laughs) slapping each other and screaming each other over like the smallest thing, then that's how you're gonna react when you have a fight with your friend at school, if nobody else is modeling anything different. And so I wanted her and Amir to have this really genuine, really loving friendship that isn't perfect, because kids mess up and kids aren't always good friends, but I wanted to share that they're still always able to talk it through and resolve things in this healthy way. Like, is that the super realistic experience of like every kid? No, but I think it's important (laughs) that kids see that (laughs) so they have more examples of like what a healthy friendship looks like.
0: Exactly. And what I think would be interesting for a teacher to to pinpoint all the communication breakdowns that happen between Ivalice and the different kids, her classmates in the story. And with Amir, Um, you know, the communication breakdowns and also like where they're successful, because, Mm -hmm. right, it's so important for kids to have effective communication strategies and they're not really taught explicitly like how to communicate in a healthy way with friends or family And I think sometimes, you know, teachers like, you know, we get so bogged down with teaching to the test or, you know, trying to finish whatever goal we're trying to work on a lesson plan or whatever. But it's important to also incorporate, you know, just explicitly teaching how to effectively communicate. And I wanna talk about your experience as a teacher, once a teacher, always a teacher. Um, I'm a school based speech therapist, and the morning wake up times are brutal, especially <laughs> in the dead of winter. But I always look forward to hearing my students' silly stories or even just hearing them laugh through their toothy smiles. Uh, talk about your experience teaching children and the impact that had on you as a
1: writer? Yeah, so I've, I've taught in a lot of different schools and a lot of different um, age ranges, um, all the way from kindergarten to eighth grade. (laughs) Um, What's your favorite age range, just out of curiosity? Middle school. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I like, I like high school age too, but I've only worked with them in like, Nonprofit profit after school kind of settings I've yeah. never taught them in a classroom but I do think I do think middle school is is my sweet spot um I really like that age <laughs> and I feel like it's one of those things where people either hate it or they love it yeah. you know either they would never teach in middle school or like that's where they always teach
0: well I mean I feel like the consensus or you ask like teach teachers nationwide like what's the hardest age range and I think you i I'm pretty confident we'd find everyone say most people would say middle school
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I I like it because I feel like the students are old enough that you can have very real kind of grown-up conversations with them about things that actually affect their lives but they're still like young enough that they'll like bring you little handwritten notes and like hug you when they see you. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, they're still, I don't know. They're still just, just young enough. Yeah, in between <laughs> they're in that in between spot. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, they're not, they're not quite as uncaring as <laughs> as they might, you know, because once you're in high school, it's a little bit, I don't know. You're just more independent. I think they're not quite at that super independent stage yet yeah. in general, but um. In terms of how it affects me as a writer, I think it's honestly just really taught me how to listen, which I think is a very important skill to have as a writer, especially if you're writing, like you can't write authentic dialogue like happening between children if you've never listened to children speak, (laughs) for example. And so I think it's really taught me how to listen. It's taught me to respect and value what kids have to say, like just because they're kids doesn't mean that their opinions aren't important or their feelings aren't important. And I think that does come across in my writing. Um, I, I I don't know, I'm not, not to say that like, if you haven't taught or worked with children, you can't write children's books, but I do think that mine are better because of the years that I've spent working with kids for sure
0: that's absolutely fair to say and I I wish more people you know could come especially people in publishing could come <laughs> along and, and and see that you know the benefit of of having authors who have work with children who've been
1: around children not just and, and different, parents, different different kinds kids. of children yeah. too because I think sometimes people think oh well my kids are this way or you know my sister's kids are this way but like that's that's like your bubble that's your experience and i think in public schools especially you just come across kids who have had such wildly different experiences um and i think that's why you know when we were trying to sell even a lot of editors passed on it at first and I think all of them basically said some version of we would be interested in this if it was YA, but it's like too much for middle grade. Like we, you know, they they either liked more lighthearted middle grades or they thought it was like too serious or like too dark for middle grade. Um, (laughs) and I was always like are you like have you talked to kids yeah (laughs) a lot of kids have anxiety a lot of kids have PTSD like this is not I'm not writing about this one unicorn experience of a child like no this is actually something that a lot of kids are diagnosed with especially
0: Uh, especially working class families or Mm -hmm. immigrants you know like those kids have very unique experience and it's not really reflected enough in Kidlet. And I think you writing this book, you're speaking, you know, you're offering something for kids who have those feelings to read, you know, that they can feel, they can relate to Ibalis or Amir and, you know, kind of work through whatever it is that they're going through and in like a healthy way, mm-hmm. I think. And I want to talk about your author's note. You also provide a mental health resource guide. You know, I may not be your target audience, but I felt so comforted by your words at the end um, and your own voice as an author. I think it's probably the most thoughtful, sensitive author's note I've ever read. Your words are a tonic against the bitter and unfriendly political and social environment that kids are thrust into every day. And thank you for centering mental health in an accessible way. Um, to kids and for offering a helping hand by the way of words and resources. Can you walk us through some of the resources that you mentioned in in the um, back matter of your book? And what was that conversation like with your agent and editor about including um, the mental health resource guide?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always knew I wanted to include something. Um, our discussions were more about, you know, whether to include something in the front of the book or in the back. Um I think including kind of content warnings and like those kinds of author notes in the front is becoming a little more popular in YA, but not as much yet in middle grade. Um, The reasoning given to me being that, you know, adults are selecting these books for kids the majority of the time. And so um, they already know what they're purchasing. Um, But I did want to include that author's note at the end Um, with some resources, because I am aware that, you know, Ivelisse does have a lot of privilege in this book, you know, she um, has access to therapy, her mom can pay for the therapy, Um, she has access to prescription medication, you know, and not not all kids have that. (laughs) Like, that doesn't seem like a lot, like, oh, being able to go to therapy and get medicine, but, you know, a lot of my students, when I was a teacher, didn't have health insurance, for example. So that automatically makes anything health-related so much harder. Um, in Lisa's case, her mom was also supportive about obviously driving her to therapy, driving to the pharmacy to like get her meds. And some kids don't have family who's supportive, even if they have the financial means um, or they might want to, but they might not own a car (laughs) to get to where, you know, or parents' work schedules might make it so that nobody can take you to therapy. Um, And so there's just like a lot of things that are going on that Elise doesn't have to worry about in this book at all. Like if she wants therapy, it's there. If she wants meds, it's there. And so I wanted to acknowledge that um, in my sharing of resources, because I am aware that not all kids have that option. And so that's why I wanted to include websites where kids could look stuff up if they're readers or YouTube videos where they could watch things if they're more of a visual, like auditory kind of person, a helpline that you can call, you know, if you don't have any other adults you can talk to. Um, I just wanted to put options out there, you know, because obviously I'm going to be championing that kids who need or want therapy be able to access it but I know that that's not always possible <laughs> in this healthcare landscape in this country but
0: it's even even just the resource guide I think is something that you know unfortunately we don't see that often and that's why it's so critical and so important that you included it and it's a very loving thing to do as an author because you're like here this you're you could have just been like here's this story and then end it. But you actually care about the reader and how they're um, reflecting on everything you've, you wrote in the story and and then possibly thinking about how they're how they're feeling themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was really, really wonderful. And um, I also want to ask you, so. You know, we read the book, Eva at least explains it all. How do you imagine Eva in the future?
1: What does her future look like in your eyes? So I think this is one of those books where, you know, obviously not everything is going to wrap up perfectly at the end because, um, you know, if you have anxiety, you have anxiety for life, right? There's not like a switch you can like toggle, like you can learn coping skills, you can learn ways to manage it better, but like that anxiety is not going to disappear, right, or that traumatic event that happened to you isn't going to get magically erased from your memory. And so Ivelisse, the book ends, I think, on an upward note, but obviously there's still work to be done. And so when I imagine um, Ivelisse as older, I, you know, I imagine her as someone who's like a mental health advocate, you know, maybe (laughs) she runs some sort of club at school, she still goes to therapy, she still writes, you know, but I, I like to imagine her as a teenager who feels very confident in who she is, very confident in the fact that she knows how to access what she needs and how to, um, help other people access what they need. Um, I definitely could see her like performing poetry somewhere <laughs> G- growing up to be an nice adult, thought. writing a memoir in verse. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, But I, I think it's just, she'll just become an adult who hopefully, you know, has learned to find ways to manage all the things that felt so impossible when she was 12, but maybe now at 18, don't feel that impossible, and they're just kind of a part of her life, and and she has found a way to just navigate that in in healthy and and I don't even know, well, and, <laughs> yes. and while
0: honoring, well, and also while honoring the memory of her family, exactly, oh, exactly that's a special part and i just want to say from boricua to boricua thank you for creating a story of a puerto rican family with so much heart and soul everything from the reference to hurricane maria to the reference of ensalada de bacalao (laughs) which everyone that scene is hysterical um it's a beautiful thing to see anyone write so lovingly about their patria and their culture and i really feel that love when i read e-release explains it all I truly believe that to be Boricua is to be part of a community in resistance. And as a creative person yourself, you're preserving our culture, our dialect, as does Ibe, even though she might not reali- realize it. How has growing up in Boricua shaped you? And what are your favorite thoughts when you reminisce about um, when you grew up
1: there? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that I, I feel like I keep thinking about it all the time because I, I feel, I guess I never really stopped to consider, like, when I first moved to the States, I just automatically thought that I would be so similar to, like, any other Latinx person in the United States. Like, I think until I was here, I didn't really understand the nuances of people who immigrated here through like a lot of hardship and trauma people who were born here and had to navigate maybe not feeling as close to their culture as they wish or not speaking the language um I think like I didn't realize like all my privilege until I moved here like even the fact that like I went to school in Spanish, (laughs) you know, K to 12, like the fact that I considered myself to be a very strong reader and writer in Spanish, like that, that is a privilege because people growing up in the States, those kids don't even have the opportunity to do that unless you happen to live somewhere where they have like dual language schools or, you know, but that's, that's not the given, right? Usually you you go into school and then you just have to focus on English until you get to middle school. And then maybe you can take like a Spanish elective (laughs) depending on your school, you know, but it's more focused on, you know, early conversational kind of language and not like the kind of Spanish I was doing where we were reading, you know, Don Quixote and (laughs) writing essays about it. Um, And then, so there's so many things that I think, I think about differently now that I'm in the States, because when I was in PR, everybody was having the exact same experience as me in terms of culture culture and language. And then now getting here, this thing that I never really thought of, like everybody's Puerto Rican in Puerto Rico kind of thing. And then coming here and I'm like, what do you mean like there's like all these different distinctions or like people will say like oh you're not Puerto Rican enough or you're you know like those are things I never thought of and so I think I reminisce more about my childhood like now that I'm here I think than when I was living there. Um, Or like, I mean, I was living there as an adult too, but like, I didn't think about these things, you know, until I got to the States. And I think now I'm able to think more critically on it. And and even things about like like colorism in Puerto Rico or, you know, stuff like that, that again, I just wasn't thinking about when I was like growing up there. And so I think that in a way, I think a lot more critically about my experience now that I'm not there. but you know my my family is all still there and so honestly my favorite part about going home is just seeing them. <laughs> so I do I do try to go home very often and see that. But when I'm just thinking about it in an abstract way, I definitely think about it differently now. Um I just know a lot more now than I did then.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Well, I think you're cuz because you grew up there. For me when I would visit it would just be in the summers and it was just like so magical and I wanted to live there like full-time as a kid and I didn't understand like why my parents left you know because it's Mm -hmm. such a beautiful place you know it's where my my extended family lived and um, so it's fascinating like the different experiences that we've all had Mm -hmm. Um, although we're all from you know historically the same region you know the different experiences that people have so now listeners you're in for a treat (laughs) <laughs> literally kind of <laughs> perhaps we can settle some uh, age-old debates in this last few minutes boricua style so um i'm throwing down the gauntlet here with some with a speed round so andrea you can only choose one you can choose it i guess from your perspective or i guess if you were Eva Lise, like what would she choose uh, it's up to you okay. um but from me <laughs> <laughs> so we have flan de vainilla or
1: flan de queso um, say? I I will say flan de queso but I have been vegan for eight years and I have yet to have a good vegan flan de queso like I like I've had it de vanilla. That's hard yeah so I still say like theoretically I like the queso one more but I haven't had it in so long that I don't know I just, Charlottesville, you know, is not just like teeming with people making like vegan Puerto oh, Rican desserts. I, I'm vegetarian too. So
0: we're the outliers because put yeah. is like very pork centric. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and, and I'm a, I'm a good cook, but I'm a, I'm a really bad baker. So
0: oh, baking is, so it's
1: not like I a flang that's like too high level for me. <laughs> All right, next
0: up, piragua or limbel.
1: Piragua. Piragua. <laughs> yes. Why? Because I don't like ice. Oh. And with a piragua, I could just like suck on the syrup with the straw. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> I felt like the limber like didn't give me much choice but to suck on the ice. Yeah, I see that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just love cocoa. Okay, so tostone de... Well, you kind of gave this away earlier
1: in your intro. <laughs> tostone de pana or de platano? Pana. Pana. Anything with pana, like pastelón de pana, like pana yeah. majada, tostone, anything. Pana. I mean, and to be fair, all I eat here is plantains because mm-hmm. I can't get pana here. No, no. It's <laughs> but I think that too. just makes it like every time I go home, because my uncle has a giant um tree. Yeah. So if I go home in the summer, they're usually ripe and he will bring some over and I'll just like eat a lot of it.
0: He brings them. H- how does he do that? They're huge.
1: Yeah. He will come with like a oh giant bag with like, <laughs> I mean, usually he'll only bring, well, now he only brings like two. It, well, it just depends on like, <laughs> the sister's two. there too. two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so when I, when I went there in the summer, um, they were like like super ripe so he was like you guys need to like cut this up now and mm-hmm. like put it in the freezer or in the fridge because if you just leave the banana sitting on the counter it's like <laughs> going to go bad that's how ripe they yeah. were so yeah, but it it was delicious. I love it so much. But yes, if someone doesn't know, like they're they're head sized. <laughs> Bas- yeah, like a big basketball.
0: Yeah, yeah they're very big. Yeah, big basketball. <laughs> All right, next one: empanadilla or alcapurria?
1: Empanadilla.
0: Okay. Yeah, I would too. Alcapurrias are good, but they're very greasy. Too greasy. Yeah, <laughs> <is> too greasy.
1: <laughs> it's too greasy. And um, and yeah. I will say I. I don't know how to make alcapurrias. Like, I will, like, if I go home, like, I can find veggie ones or whatever. Um, Whereas, like, empanadillas, I can make my own version here.
0: Absolutely. You know what I mean? I just feel
1: like they're easier. Like, if I'm craving them, it's something I can make in Virginia, and I can do them in my air fryer, so I don't have to fry or anything, and it's just, like, easy. I don't know how I would even go about making and Alcapurria.
0: Yeah, me neither. It's a mystery. (laughs) We'll have to to watch a little closer next time. Okay, now a beverage here. Malta or Coco Rico? Neither. Neither? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Like the kid version of Andrea, what would she drink?
1: Neither. I never like Malta. (laughs) No, I, I know. It's I yeah, I don't like but I'm weird about beverages in general. Like I really will just drink water. Oh, that's that's the healthy. Like area. I'm one of those people. Yeah, no, it's healthy. Yeah. But like I I've just never been like a beverage yeah. kind of person.
0: Well, yeah, the beverages that they like um, advertise to kids are insane, like so much sugar, like Malta has so much sugar. But I remember as a kid, I was like, oh, yeah, like I can never drink this in like the U.S. Like my mommy doesn't buy it over there. So I would, you know, (laughs) down like three a day and it's just it's just so unhealthy. But there I I, like kid version of me, I remember enjoying the taste, but I know they're super sugary. Okay, polvorones or florecitas what
1: that's not on the list you sent me okay (laughs) um (laughs) yes okay I'll go I'll go with the florecitas which by the way I I think are accidentally vegan really wait yeah 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 I think the last time um I was there it was one of those things where like they were out and someone was like oh Andrea do you want them and then they're like oh wait can you have them and we like checked (laughs) oh that's sweet yeah, because they don't have they don't have gelatin or anything, even I don't, though it's yeah, like, I, I think like, you're right.
0: Um yeah, I remember having those all the time. My grandmother mm-hmm. always kept them in the house. All right, last one, hopefully, Turrón or pilona de coco.
1: Turrong. Turrón, Yeah, me too. Here's the thing, I love coconut, but I don't like coconut candy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I
0: like limbel, but pilona de coco, yeah, I if I had to pick turong or pilona de coco, I'd, I'd pick turong for mm. sure. That's like when I think of turong, I think of like Navidad, right? It's like, yeah, it's definitely like a holiday, especially like holiday treat. Yeah,
1: uh, but those sure. are not vegan, right? It's like milk,
0: nougat, nougat. Yeah, they, they
1: probably aren't. Um, I definitely haven't had one. Or, you know, there's like a lot of things that I just assume are when it comes to PR, I tend to assume that most things aren't vegan. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Water. Agua de coco. That's it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) um, Unless someone like specifically brings me like one of the times I went recently, my, my brother's girlfriend, um went to some bakery and brought us like flanes that were vegan wow. and and they were like a bunch of different flavors and stuff and so I just like ate a ton of flan, you know but unless someone specifically tells me that something's vegan I I don't know I don't I don't trust it yeah, <laughs> you're right no you're right not to trust like I
0: remember like like arroz con like usually like you would think that that doesn't have meat no? yeah but it you're could? like
1: no, no there's like some sort of broth or yes yeah, 100 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much andrea
0: for this amazing conversation um lastly like where can um listeners find you and do you have any extra special news that you want to share
1: um i am mostly on instagram and it's my name so andrea Arango. Um, that's that's where I am like every day. My other social media, I don't check that often. So Instagram is the place to be. Um, as far as news, my I mean, buy my book. <laughs> it's not going to be at Barnes and Noble. please please ask your indie bookstores to to carry it (laughs) ask your libraries to purchase it (laughs) yeah we gotta support
0: independent bookstores and that will be out September 13th 2022 right
1: yeah so I mean hopefully right by the time this goes live yeah it will be out
0: Oh, thank you so much, Andrea. I can't wait for your book to come out officially and for everyone else to read it. Thank you so much. <laughs> If you'd like to learn more about Las Musas or our books, please visit our website at lasmusasbooks.com or find us on social media at Las Musas Books. And be sure to check out our bookshop page where each purchase of one of our books goes goes towards supporting independent bookstores. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also sign up for Las Musas newsletter to have podcast updates as well as other Musa news such as release dates, teasers, spotlights, and more delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening.